0: Hi, Priscilla McKinney here, Mama Bird and CEO at Little Bird Marketing. I'm so excited to announce, finally, my book is out. Collaboration is the new competition. Why the future of work rewards a cross-pollinating hive mind and how not to get left behind. So, what's the book about? (laughs) The impetus was really about a gap that I saw in the business vernacular about how we need to work together to get ahead and have much bigger wins. I think it's super important right now because there is a growing need for collaboration in the business world. And I made this book super practical. In fact, the chapters tell you how many minutes it's going to take for you to get through them. I know you're busy, but these kinds of ideas are going to, I hope, permeate into your thought process and help you get ahead quicker. The first part of the book is about what is the state of affairs in business and why I believe collaboration is really needed. And it also goes on to explain these are the fundamentals that need to happen so you can have collaboration. So once you set yourself up for the win, then it's not always smooth sailing. And I finished the last half of the book giving you seven different anchors that you can use as a practical tool in order to make sure you stay on course. So, in a time when business has never been more complicated, this book offers a fresh and, in my opinion, much-needed perspective. It moves away from that idea of linear success and instead brings people together to give you a competitive advantage. Visit PriscillaMcKinney.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Ponderings from the Perch the Little Bird Marketing Company podcast. I'm Priscilla McKinney. I am the mama bird and host for you today. And I'm going to try and keep the laughter to a little bit of a minimum, at least so you can actually hear my speaker because this is one of my besties I like to hang out with. You're going to immediately understand why we like to hang out and why we like to talk shop. So Dominic Carter, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Priscilla. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, we have known each other for an awfully long time. And I count it real privilege to know you, but you and I usually end the night. It starts like with a really serious shop talking about what's going on in the industry. And then by the end, we could be talking about nearly anything.
1: Yes. <laughs> the car is <beers> all around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what instrument you played in bands, etc. We can go on and on. You lead such an interesting team, and if you don't know Dominic Carter, he leads the Carter Group over in Tokyo. I had just such a great time visiting their team and really getting to understand what they do in that market. It's such an interesting, nuanced, dynamic, growing market, and it is something that really is such a specialty. But it is interesting on so many different levels. So we're going to try and kind of contain it a little. A little bit today, but I want to do something a little bit different for this podcast because of course, everybody is talking about AI right now. And I want to take it a little bit of a different take. You and I have talked a lot about what AI can do, what it can't, etc. But we're going to talk about it a little bit with a cultural lens. As a cultural anthropologist, I love talking with people who are really doing the work across culture. So let's just give a little bit of some basic 411 about the Carter Group and who you call basically, if your insights is taking you to Japan, you call someone, On Dom's team. So Dom, tell us a little bit about the background of the Carter Group and the focus that you all have.
1: Sure. Well, I'm from Australia and I've been running market research companies in Japan for the last 20 odd years. In that time, obviously, we've worked on a very wide range of projects with a very wide range of clients. We cover all of the classic market research methodologies, But the work that we do is always very much focused on people that don't know the Japanese market well and are looking for somebody that can understand them well, but also understand the consumer as well. So we play... That kind of role of translating what we can gather from the market in a way that our clients can easily understand in a way that's actually delivered to them that would feel familiar with them of working anywhere in the world. As
0: far as the work that you've done, I mean, I've seen a lot of work you've done based on your case studies from luxury brands like Coach and Gucci and Mercedes. And then I've seen a real strong vertical in the gaming industry and in social media. I know right now you're working with a lot of social media platforms. So tell us a little bit about some of the really cool opportunities you've had to work with these global brands as they've tried to gain a better foothold in the Japanese market.
1: Yes, we have a long history of actually working in entertainment and media and those sorts of areas. And we've worked in the theme park area for a very long time and with Hollywood studios and so forth. So it's a natural extension for us as the world of entertainment becomes much more digitally focused that we're going to be working on those sorts of areas as well. So we we do a lot of work in video gaming these days. It's not just for American clients, it's for Chinese clients and European clients as well. A lot of very interesting new methodologies that we're experimenting with in those areas. As you know, young people these days, even from your own culture, it's very hard to understand what's going on with them and the way that they spend their time and so forth. So
0: <laughs> Have we already digressed down into kids these days in this conversation?
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, look, I mean, it's very, very, like, for example, if you think about recruitment For certain types of projects, you can't use the normal recruitment channels that you would normally use in market research to recruit respondents who play certain games that no one's ever heard of before, but are a big thing for those people, or even to persuade these people to come to participate in research might be difficult. So you need quite deep roots into those subcultures.
0: Just like where they're living, kind of by way of example. So think more Discord, they're not on Facebook. Think more WeChat in Asia, not on Twitter or X, whatever it is we're that, calling that's it. That's right. And
1: these people may, in fact, be friends of our researchers. So it's a little bit different than what the rule book would say about how you recruit respondents. But in those sorts of areas, we have to get hold of people through non-conventional methods because it's a different world. But that sort of thinking has to sort of go across all of our categories as well. I think people are looking for less and less that kind of that typical consumer or that typical respondent who are looking for people with whom they can have a really productive conversation that's going to really help develop their concept and help them hone what they need to do to be successful here.
0: So you're recruiting the people, but then your team is also handling the research. But let's back up just for a minute about what you mentioned that's super interesting about gaming, because it's not just like product launch. And you mentioned it's not just American companies and how are they going to come to Japan? It's a global phenomenon. And I would think that you have a lot of research even before games become games, like looking at Character archetypes and looking at artwork and is the story arc working for a Japanese market? So kind of tell us a little bit more about what's happening.
1: Well, and sometimes it could be even down to the artwork. Does this artwork look Japanese? Do these characters in this video game, do they look Japanese or do they look like they're Chinese? Or because if that's not what they're trying to convey, then we can work on that. So localization is much more than just translation. Whether it's gaming or whatever the category is, there's certainly, there's a feeling and a sense of japanese that can be hard to put your finger on. But when we delve deeper into these categories, we can give our clients a bit more detailed advice on how people want things to look, how they want to feel. Even in a category like skincare, for example, the ideal of what Japanese skin looks like can be quite different to what the ideal of what skin looks like in America, for example. So just understanding what those desired states are and how they're different to your home market, I think is very helpful.
0: Yeah, and to me, when I was in Tokyo, all I'm thinking is, wow, these people are obsessed with really high quality skincare. (laughs) It's just, it's crazy.
1: The directory of new skincare launches, I pulled this out for a client once a few years ago. It's like the phone book. Basically, it's a highly, highly competitive market. To be able to find your place within that can take some work. And I think that it does take spending some genuine quality time with users to work out what they want and how you can help them.
0: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that, because I want to unpack a little bit what you said about gaming without going necessarily into the methodologies. But you said right now you are doing a lot of really interesting new methodologies in gaming. And then you and I ended up talking about AI, and AI is just one of several new things that you're incorporating into methodologies. But you told me something about what you had just used ChatGPT for that was kind of interesting and eye-opening. So tell my listeners a little bit about about that
1: story. Yeah, I thought it might be a nice one for the non-technical researchers out there. But I mean, I have no special insight into the mechanics of how something like ChatGPT works other than a general understanding. But I did have a project where we had to write 25 concept statements recently. And I thought, oh, my team looks very busy, so how about I write them? And then I thought, well... I don't want to write 25
0: (laughs) concepts. Wait a minute. I'm the CEO. I I
1: have a weekend, right? (laughs) And then I realized it took a little bit of work, but then I realized that actually, yes, I could copy and paste the product's homepage into ChatGPT with the right prompting could get it to write a pretty competent summary, which we could then turn into a consumer-friendly concept statement, which we could then translate into Japanese. So there's a few steps there. And actually... The translation into Japanese that ChatGPT does is better than, in my opinion, is better than Google or DeepL or even those very impressive tools. So, of course, we have to check them and our team checked all the concepts and checked it with the companies as well, just to make sure that everything was faithfully executed but one of the advantages of that approach was there really wasn't any bias from the researcher in terms of how those concepts were written and how they were presented and i think that's apart from the time saving i think that's actually a genuine benefit and respondents in a traditional way but the way we got to the concepts was aided by ai so i think it's a good modest case study of how we can use ai to increase productivity and and ultimately to improve quality as well i think.
0: Yeah, you and I have talked before about AI being a great tool to just free up some time for that amazing analyst you have, one who has really steeped themselves in the Japanese culture, someone who understands these two worlds that might be colliding in any given moment, freeing up some time for them to not deal with the avalanche of data, but actually get to spend their best and brightest time on thinking about the nuanced differences and how do I go about validating this? So tell me a little bit about that cultural nuance that you all just live in all day long.
1: I think as a foreigner living in Japan, you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy on interpreting everything around you because things are not told to you directly. A lot of the time. And that's a feature of indirectness is a feature of Japanese culture. You need to be aware of it when you're doing research as well, because respondents will not always answer your questions directly. So you need to have some appreciation for what may not be being said in terms of what is being said. And this is something that as a foreigner in our personal lives, in our working lives, we're always dealing with these kind of features of communication where people may not always say what they mean and we may need to address what we think people meant instead of what they said and so on and so forth which makes qualitative research a little bit more complex or the requirement to have people who are participants in culture help you to interpret it is still something for me after 25 plus years of working in Japan. It's still very important to have the inputs of local analysts when you're doing qualitative research.
0: You're mentioning things like body language or just the cultural context of how the question is being answered or maybe the subject matter that is being dealt with like that may be a perfectly fine subject In an American setting where this is absolutely taboo in Japan, or maybe an age difference between moderator or participant or like these kinds of things that are affecting the way you actually get at the insights?
1: Yes, I think it all comes down to rapport. And there's no hard and fast rule. It's not necessarily the case that you have to have a young moderator with a young group of respondents, but the moderator has to be able to be in a state of good rapport with them, a state of appropriate rapport where the respondents will feel they'll feel comfortable sharing freely. And some moderators are better at that than others, some just have a natural skill which is actually hard to pin down we like to keep those moderators in our team because they're very hard to find so we're not looking for mechanical regurgitations of a discussion guide we're looking at moderation that can be flexible and respond to the actual research objectives and be able to elicit really good and hopefully unexpected feedback from respondents as well because it's obviously that unexpected element in research, which is why we do research, we want to learn (laughs) new things, but it definitely comes down to being in rapport. So let's say, for example, if we're doing an ethnography style interview in a Japanese home, for example, we need to be the foreign client and the foreign researchers need to be very sensitive to the nonverbal communication that they give off and the way that they behave in the environment and so forth. We just want as much as possible to have our response feel comfortable so they, they can share freely and truthfully because, as I said, the bias in Japanese culture is for perhaps not to always say what you mean because people try to maintain harmony. Safety and rapport instead of harmony is really what we're going for when we do our work. So that requires a really good moderator and it requires also good interpretation of what we think that we're seeing out of that work and of course that's an interplay between our clients between our researchers and even our researchers who are non-Japanese our researchers are Japanese and I think when we sometimes challenge each other throughout the process I think you get a better outcome. Let's take a short break.
0: As a business professional, mastering social media is no longer a nice-to-have set of skills, but a fundamental need in order to advance your career and exceed goal. A lot of people are interested in learning social selling techniques for revenue generation, network building, and maybe even to advance their thought leadership. But what is actually needed is a practical and repeatable system to digitally transform whole teams. Commit to creating meaningful digital communities and learn how to leverage social media to turn relationships into sales online far outperform their competitors. And companies that commit to investing in their teams to increase their personal social influence reap the benefit of increased brand awareness and positive upticks in company reputation. Social media is natural. It's cost-effective and it's an easily leveraged tool at anyone's disposal. What is lacking is an effective and proven system that trains sales, marketing, HR, and executives alike to move from social selling to complete digital transformation and into digital dominance. Our 12-week social selling course is a practical, hands-on experience. It's taken over time specifically to address the needed mindset shifts, the changes in habits and behaviors, and all of this while implementing new skills. You will learn how to network effectively and at scale, build rapport with targeted audiences, expand your influence, and become the go-to authority in your area of expertise. So this is not a quick tips and tricks for LinkedIn success flash in the pan. It's a commitment to changing the way you show up online and experience career-shifting breakthroughs. This is expert instruction in small cohorts with personalized one-on-one coaching. If you're interested, go learn more at littlebirdmarketing.com slash social hyphen influence. Oh, I would totally agree with that. And a team that is really out for that next major aha. So kind of to put it the way you did, is if you want to sum up what you've already know, use AI and some other tools and let's get a good summary. But if you want to really have that moment of that serendipity with a moderator where someone finally kind of lets go of the thing that you is surprising and hopefully can move brands forward. You do have to be in that appropriate rapport and you have to just know the context in which you're sitting.
1: Yes. But like research is about finding out new stuff. To be really simple about it, we want to find out stuff that we didn't know before. So by definition, if it's coming out of generative AI, it's something that people knew before, which is great that people knew it and not everyone knew that people knew it. Now we all have access to that. But the only way that we can get to really sort of out of the box solutioning for our clients is still working with respondents in the way that we were saying, being in good rapport, having good moderators and getting them to give us actually new and exciting insights that then we can implement. And that has to be done face to face. You cannot replace that with synthetic respondents and that kind of thing, even though it's very interesting for certain applications. When you have a real problem or a a client needs a way to get out of a current pattern of thinking or make a genuine breakthrough, we have to go face-to-face with people.
0: Okay. I think that's the mic drop here. I love that. But I've got you in the hot seat. So I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit about some myth busters about the Japanese people and culture and their buying habits and what you hear in Consumer Insights, because they're can be people still who say, you know what, look, we've got this product that does really well in this place in Asia, or it's done really well in the US market or wherever it is. And we think with a slight tweak, we can enter the Japanese market and make good on it. So in all of our years of experience, (laughs) let's just bust a few of the myths that you think people come in thinking the Japanese people or the Japanese culture are this, but actually, it's quite different. So give us a few of those examples.
1: Yeah, I think the danger zone is when you've been very successful in a market like, like the United States or Europe and. So you've had some experience with moving out of your home market and then you come to Japan and you believe that the playbook can be applied here. But usually there is some level of adaptation that needs to be done. It could be in the product, it could be in the packaging, it could be in the communications, it could be in the level of claims that people are making. I mean, I've had clients come in where literally we've had to change everything like I'm thinking of a skincare product, for example, here, like the packaging is wrong, the promise is wrong, the formulation is too strong. For A good example might be in Western markets, you may want to promise people a very fast effect in anti-aging, for example. Let's look at an anti-aging product. You might want to say, okay, hey, this product is going to produce a visible difference in your wrinkles within four weeks. Now, and clinically proven and here are the before and afters and (laughs) and all this kind of thing. But your average consumer in Japan looks at that and they think of the downside. They Oh, okay, that sounds interesting, but it could be dangerous. Or have they tested that product on Japanese skin? Because Japanese skin is different. A very, very strong perception that Japanese skin is different to any other skin in the world. And there is actually some evidence to back that up that may be physically true, but certainly psychologically true. So they're the sorts of things that you need to do. So packaging may need to be changed. You may need to do much more work convincing people that your product is safe. And you also, in the bigger picture, you may want to look at what are ideals of beauty, whereas in Western markets, we may think that it's an ideal when you're 60 to look like you're 50. Whereas in Japan, people may want to look 60, but they may want to look like an excellent 60.
0: (laughs) I love that, but that's such an interesting nuance, but it is so important. And when you think about that dollar spend, you have just seconds on that shelf of making that critical decision and it can go awry very, very quickly. And you get that one chance at a product.
1: Well, if you're trying to communicate something that may be aspirational in your home market, it might have the same impact here. Or it's a case of working out what's the segment or the subsegment that actually really does want what I have to sell with minimal adaptation, but you have to realize it may not be the mass market, it may be a niche. I always think about the example of US automakers who have over the years made several attempts to sell their cars in Japan. I remember there's one project I worked on years and years ago for Ford Focus, which is a small car. And Ford was trying to sell the small car in Japan. But Japan's kind of like the home of the small car. So why would you bring the small, American car with all of the perceptions of American car quality at that time that people held in Japan, which are not particularly positive.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say you mean lack of quality. Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. And certainly Japanese have a very strong perception that their own domestically made products are higher quality than everywhere else. But that's not the reason why they buy imported products. (laughs) There's other reasons why people buy imported products. So in that sense, it would have made a lot more sense if Ford, for example, would have like really pushed their huge SUVs in Japan, which sounds completely counterintuitive because Japanese have small, narrow roads and small garages and so forth. But there is a market in Japan, especially in Tokyo, or well, there certainly was at that time, for very large American SUVs and had very strong image and could have made more of an impact than what they were doing at that time in that sector. So trying to sell into areas where Japanese local competitors are very strong without having something that's actually unique or superior or can actually make a difference to the way that people perceive the category I think that's a really important point when you're coming into the market that you've got something that actually will make people think differently about the category. So if it's coffee, classic examples, when Starbucks came into the market, that really prompted a different way of thinking about the category. So you really got to think about where you can make your impact as well. There's adaptation that needs to be done. And we need to, honestly speaking, do quite a bit of research sometimes in terms of working out how to do that successfully. But I think the payoffs are definitely there if you spend the time. If you're just going to want to apply your playbook that works in the US or Europe and apply that into Japan, it may not work. The other point, it's kind of interesting, is when you do this work in Japan, you'll usually find that in the rest of Asia, there's less work for you to do. Because if it's sort of an old saying, if it works in Japan, it'll work in the rest of Asia. To some extent, what Japanese are into is actually has a lot of weight in Asia as well. So you'll see even to this day in markets like Singapore on the sides of buses, this is the number one shampoo in Japan. Japan has some clout in the rest of Asia culturally.
0: Right. And you've done a lot of work in the luxury market. And there again, that's about aspirational purchasing. And it's about very nuanced reasons for buying.
1: That's right. And in that, just in that luxury sector, there's so much channel fragmentation now that really understanding the buyer and how they interact with the brand for example what is the role of retail now in where there are parallel import channels there are brand-owned channels there's secondhand sites there's all of that playing into that set of touch points that people have so where are you going to invest in physical and what's the purpose of that touch point as well is something that i think requires a lot of time spent with your buyers and some genuine understanding
0: Okay. We don't have a ton of time left, but I really want to ask you this question because nobody has answered it on my podcast before. And we just talked about the idea of mistakes you can make trying to bring your product or service over to a different market and you can lose that opportunity for a brand launch. But I also want to hear a little bit from you about a mistake people could make about the generational differences or more specifically, the difference in demographics. So just give everybody just a kind of a short view of of what the age spread is in Japan and why you have to be very careful to be representative in qualitative research in that market.
1: Yes, the structure of the population in Japan is very interesting in that there are so many older people compared to younger people in fact there's never been any society in the history of the world that has a demographic structure like what japan looks like now so we have a very putting it into sort of terms that sort of americans would understand in terms of generations like that sort of baby boomer generation in japan was very big and the children of the baby boomers are a very big cohort in the population as well. So the the largest year in the Japanese population now is people who are born in 1974. After that, it really trails off. There are really a lot fewer younger people. So we have this very large seniors market And we have also a very large market for people who are looking after seniors.
0: Okay, I say easy now, easy how you describe people who were born in 74. I'm (laughs) going to warn you, I'm a little close to that.
1: In in full disclosure, (laughs) I was born in 1974, so I'm sort of part of that in a way. But understanding the structure of the population, I think, is very important in terms of understanding what your opportunities are. And that doesn't mean that there's no opportunity selling to younger age groups. In fact, there's great opportunity selling to younger age groups because their scarcity value makes them very interesting as consumers. And salaries are just going to go up and up and up and up. If you're a young Japanese worker, you've got a pretty bright future ahead of you because there's so few of you. And in a way you could argue with AI and robotics, And the productivity payoffs that we're all expecting to come from that, that having a smaller population, having a smaller working age population is going to be beneficial. So we may well end up with a smaller but very wealthy and successful set of younger cohorts in the population that can then support the older parts of the population, which in any case have an enormous amount of money so the older age groups in japan are very wealthy relatively speaking compared to western countries it's a very interesting market but very necessary to be aware of what the generations are what their differences are. And of course, when you're doing your research, unless you have the intention to mix those generations together for some purpose, you do really need to be sensitive to the fact that there definitely are sort of different dynamics that go on in these generations, which mean you may want to separate them out when you do your work.
0: I love that. And that's just another layer of decoding this culture that is not a monolith. (laughs) There aren't these just generalized statements that you can make about the people of Japan. And I see that as really the danger. If you don't think that you need to get face to face and really hear from people and let them think through their thoughts and kind of even formulate new ideas because of how much has changed, then you can very quickly get a quite off course with your brand, with your product and services lines.
1: Yeah, and there are different value systems at play in Japan, which we've done quite a lot of work at uncovering those and measuring those and certain things that people may want to introduce to the market, even ideas, for example, if we're thinking about sustainability, climate change advocacy, these sorts of things, you need to be aware of what those different value systems are. And ultimately, I think you need to find the people who are your allies for change and speak with them first and get them on board. So the idea that you're speaking to this monolithic market is very misleading and won't help you to be successful in it. I love it. Um, Okay.
0: You heard that here on Ponderings from the Purge. I'm just saying if that's newsflash to you. But you do want to connect with Dominic. He's very easy to connect with on LinkedIn. And I'm going to spell it for you, but it's very straightforward. Dominic, D-O-M-I-N-I-C, Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R. And they are the Carter Group. And you can find them at Carter, J-M-R-N. which stands for Japan Market Resource Network. As you can hear from this conversation, they are an amazing resource in a country that can be seen as being very difficult for market entry. So definitely talking with the experts would be super important. Dominic, it's always super fun talking to you. And I feel like my degree means something when I talk with you. So I feel good about myself. That's good.
1: It's always a pleasure, Priscilla. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Well, from all of the peeps here at Little Bird Marketing, have a great day and happy marketing.